This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we are speaking with Doran Tausig, who is the author of What We Mean by the American Dream, Stories We Tell About Meritocracy, new from ILR and Cornell University Press. Doran, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Uh, so if you would, why don't you start uh, by telling us a bit about yourself and how it is that you came to write this book? Sure. So uh, I was a journalist uh, out of college for the first decade or so of my career. I sort of gradually realized that wasn't for me and made my way over into academia uh, and uh, you know got into grad school. I was interested initially in grad school in, in I think something that had that had interested me in the world of journalism, which is, these little summaries that we do to explain who people are, these sort of summary life stories uh, that journalists will do in profiles or even news stories. And, you know, like uh, you'll say like, you know, Mr. Smith grew up here and he did this and now he works here and that kind of thing. And so I I, I initially started studying uh, life stories in graduate school. Um, And as I dug into those, you know, it was around 2012 uh, the presidential election was going on. One of the big themes in that presidential election was the sort of like, you know, Barack Obama saying, you didn't build that. There's some, you, you remember that kerfuffle? Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, Mitt Romney given his uh, 47% spiel, or 47% of the people in the country who are, you know, takers and not makers, and, you know, don't want to take responsibility for their own lives. And it just sort of seemed like this was this major fault line in American life and that people were paying a lot of attention to it at the systemic level, but not as much at this sort of individual life story level that I was interested in. Sort of like when we summarize who a person is, we didn't, we didn't often explicitly ask like just sort of regular people, well, how'd you get here and, and do you feel like you earned it and, and, and what does that mean to you? And I thought, uh, you know, with my background in journalism, I feel like I could ask people that question and, and, uh, and that might be interesting. So, so you uh, conducted interviews with 60 some odd people, uh, mostly in the Philadelphia area, and then also looked at, at 30 sort of media narratives about more prominent kinds of people with this idea of, of unpacking a little bit about meritocracy. So why don't we start there? Um, where does that term come from? 
And what did you think was was missing from the way that we use it or the way that we understand the idea? Sure. Okay. So where the term where the term comes from is really interesting. You know, I I don't know uh, you know who in the audience sort of is, is, is familiar with the term meritocracy off the bat. I, I assure everyone that if you don't know the term meritocracy, you still know the idea meritocracy, right? Meritocracy just means like a, a, a system where people advance based on their efforts and abilities. So the, the person who's going to be best at the job gets the job. The person who did the best work that year gets the award, that kind of thing. That That's a meritocracy. Now, the term meritocracy actually comes from uh, uh, sort of mid-20th century England, and it was initially a derogatory term. It was a, a, a sociologist named Michael Young who I, I think actually didn't coin it, but he popularized it, uh, writing a book about this sort of uh, horrific landscape where people only advanced based on their intelligence and talents. And there was all this testing and, you know, uh, uh, rich people would try to adopt the gifted children of, uh, uh, of, of working class people because they knew that those people were going to end up ruling society. And, and, and he introduced it as a sort of like, we do not want to live in this. And then sort of gradually over the course of, uh, over the course of the next 50 years, it came to be a positive descriptor of what people in the UK and also here in America wanted to aspire to. We want to be a meritocracy. We want to be a society that rewards merit, which is basically positive qualities that, that deserve reward, you know, and, and, and what we think of when we, we talk about that in sort of professional context is, you know, it's very often intelligence, but also effort and hard work and other kinds of talents. Um, so, uh, yeah, so now we live in a society where this is a, an idea that we want to aspire to. Um, and, you know, in, in, in the world that I was sort of immersed in, uh, in, in academia and sort of like, you know, uh, let's say left criticism of, uh, uh, of American culture. There's a lot of cynicism about the idea of meritocracy. Basically the, the, the philosophy about it now is like, we don't live in a meritocracy, but we pretend that we do. And it's a lie that is used to justify inequality, right? Like we've always had different sort of like cultural justifications for inequality. Maybe we used to uh, live in an aristocracy and you inherit your you know, position. And, and now we say we live in a meritocracy. And so we're supposed to, uh, uh, we're supposed to achieve our positions based on our, you know, positive qualities and what people, you know, frequently left say is, but we actually don't. And, and they're right. We don't live in a meritocracy, right? Like, you know, the zip code you grew up in is extremely predictive of your income later in life. Um, uh, but that meritocracy is this is this lie that Americans buy into that allows us to uh, uh, accept this. And we tell all these stories, these like Horatio Alger stories about people picking themselves up by their bootstraps in order to persuade, you know, the American, the American public that we are a meritocracy. Uh, and what I thought was missing was actually asking people, well, how have you experienced your life in this regard? And do you feel like you've lived in a meritocracy? Do you feel like your life has worked that way? What would that really mean to you? And, you know, what I think one of the, there are a couple of things that, that more than a couple of things, perhaps, that you find that I think are, are, are 
interesting and perhaps surprising given the way that this national narrative of meritocracy has played out and unfolded. And and one is that I think even among those those sort of, of people, uh, myself included, who have been arguing for decades that whatever we mean by merit, that is that is not a good predictor of, of people's uh, position in life. As you said, it's it's literally their their parentage and the zip code they were born in continues to be the single best predictor of, say, income over the life course. But we tell this story, but that that Americans believe this, right? That we've we've internalized this notion of the American dream and that if all you need to do is is work hard and play by the rules and you can can right grow up to be anything that you want to be. But one of the first things that I think is interesting and surprising is that that almost none of your subjects actually think that we live in a functioning meritocracy. Is that right? That 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 is right. Now I, I gotta be careful with this because you know there 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 are polls that suggest otherwise. But I think this is the kind of thing where the answer you get is going to really depend on how you ask the question and the context sure. in which you ask the question, right? So if you ask, I, I, I imagine it is still the case. I don't, I'm not a pollster. Imagine it's still the case if you ask most Americans, you know, what matters most, your hard work or your, you know, family and, and, and you know, class of origin. They probably still say your hard work, right? And, and, and so you could take that and say, okay, so most Americans still believe we live in but what I was doing is I was having in-depth conversations with people about how their lives worked and how they see life working around them. And that is not what people said. You know, they, they certainly didn't say, they, they certainly didn't describe the society they were living in as anything approaching a sort of like perfect or, you know, close to accurately functioning meritocracy. Um, you know, people... People live in the world. <laughs> they live in the real world. Uh, and I think when they look around them, when they ask, like, how did I get here? They understand that it is not entirely on my own, entirely the fruits of my own efforts and talents. They say, oh, I got such and such lucky break. I had this and such, this and that mentor. My parents point to me in this direction. What's the difference between me and sort of comparable people? Well, maybe it was, you know, uh, 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 you know, my parents doing this and their parents doing that. Uh, and 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 what have you? So, so I want to circle back around to that, but I also want to to to, to sort of keep our eye on this larger context just for a, a, a little bit. Um, as I as I mentioned earlier, the other the other piece of your work here is looking at uh, national media stories of prominent people mm. and the ways in which they they talk about. Uh, success. I'm. You can't see me. I'm putting that in air quotes. Uh, sure. Achievement, right? Success. So, so what what did you observe when you were looking at those kinds of stories? And feel free if you want to jump in and maybe pick a person or two that you think is interesting to think about how those stories, how those narratives uh, play out on the national landscape. Yeah, sure. No, this is this is this is great, and this is important because it really helps to sort of make that point that uh, uh, I maybe wandered away from. Um, which is that American belief that we live in a meritocracy is not so simple and straightforward. And the observation that I make about this is that, you know, that sort of, that simple, that simple story of Americans are told we live in a meritocracy. We hear these Horatio Alger stories and we think we live, we think we live in a society that's fair where people achieve based on their merits. Um, you know, sort of suggests that when we tell stories about our heroes and our very accomplished people, that we 
make a case that they are in their, you know, high and enviable positions because of their, again, efforts and abilities, because of them, because of things that they did, right? But when you dig into the way we actually tell these stories, we don't, we tend not to so much assume that people are in high positions because of their merit as we argue about whether they are in high positions because of their merit, right? I think the most obvious and perhaps unsurprising example of this is politics. You know, if you look at like every presidential campaign, presidential candidates are, you know, uh, 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 selling biographies. I don't mean literally selling biographical books, all they are. But, you know, they make a campaign, like biographical campaign ads. Bill Clinton was the boy from hope. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, went back to Dwight Eisenhower grew up in the, the, the small yeah. frame house in Abilene. Right. Um, and so they, they, they tell these very sort of like up from humble roots, you know, Lincoln and a log cabin stories, but then the other side objects, you know, like without, without fail, they say, Oh, but they're not really there because of merit because they grew up rich or they got such and such lucky break or they lied and cheated, you know, uh, uh, or they've been rewarded by some flawed rigged system, you know, like uh, uh, Donald Trump said about Hillary Clinton. Uh, and there becomes this back and forth and this profound debate. So one example I go into some detail in about in the book is uh, Carly Fiorina, who ran for president in 2016 in the Republican primary against Donald Trump. And, and she had uh, uh, she used this tagline from secretary to CEO. You know, she had been a CEO and she said, and, the, and this tagline sort of evokes, uh, again, this humble roots, you know, uh, up from nothing by her bootstraps narrative. And the Washington Post wrote a column, a fact checking column, saying essentially, well, this isn't really true. She was a secretary, but it was like a college summer job or something. And her dad was like, uh, like the Duke of the, the, the Duke, the Dean of Duke's Law School. You know, like a sort of a very you know prominent family, uh, and that she was always on a trajectory to be something other than a secretary, and so that the the uh, uh, the story she was evoking wasn't true. And you know, we could talk about there's some interesting stuff there about like the role of the fact checker and, and that kind of thing. But the point I wanted to sort of highlight there is that like the real content of the sort of public discourse about Carly Fiorina was not a Horatio Alger story; it was a debate over to what extent she met the ideal of meritocracy, right? So it's not like a, 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 a simply treating her as meritocratic. It's asking the question and then like trying to take a measurement. And another thing I find sort of really striking about this is that, so, you know, if we look at sort of different, you know, maybe this is just me, I don't think so. If we look at sort of different sectors and say, where do we expect the sort of most meritocratic uh, sort of processes to be in place, I'd look at sports, right? Because uh, anybody could argue that, you know, somebody besides Carly Fiorina would make a better president or presidential candidate. It'd be very hard to argue that like Serena Williams shouldn't be in the, the top seat of the U.S. Open, you know? It feels like we have a more objective measurement there. But even in our profiles of star athletes, there's this question, of whether they deserve to be where they are, right? Because 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 the meaning of merit is sort of a fluid and unclear concept. And so people will say like, well, sure, 
LeBron's a great basketball player, but like, look at the genetic lottery he won, right? And so how much work has he really put into that? And, and does he deserve the rewards uh, that he's getting? Uh, Shaquille O'Neal is actually the, a really great example of that kind of thing. Uh, because, because he's sort of, you know, like the, the biggest, strongest person on the planet and didn't seem terribly invested in, in, in you know, uh, uh, improving beyond his ability to completely dominate without, you know, without a lot of effort. Um, and so there's a lot of like, well, does Shaq deserve to be Shaq? And, you know, always, and there's, there's implicit in that, of course, the assumption that, that anyone can deserve to have that kind of wealth, have that kind of fame, have that kind of prominence. Right. Um, and, and the other thing, and maybe this is the segue into talking into some of those individual narratives is is that as you've just described it right we've got really sort of muddy and messy and complicated ways that we uh as as in the u.s sort of our our culture is is it's messy right the way that we think about this can you can you say a little bit more about that and then maybe sort of talk about how this played out in in your interviews with less prominent and famous people as they tried to make sense of their own lives and how they explain where they are and why so uh, so do you, do you want me to say more about how it's muddy and messy i mean you mentioned the sort of uh uh the assumption that deserving something is possible. And I would say that is where the idea of meritocracy really does have its hooks in American culture, right? At least based on my interviews is this is, is the assumption, not that we live in a meritocracy, not that any individual achieve things, you know, purely meritocratically, but that we could and should right. live in a meritocracy. And that, that is and that we, the thing that we should be aspiring to, even if we're not there yet. That's right. And that we should, we, we should work toward this. This is a coherent idea. Um, and, uh, and that in individual cases, it, 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 it makes some sense to sort of try to, to, to evaluate how close individuals come to this ideal. And that if they, if they come sort of close enough, that's a good thing. That's associated with, with human dignity in American society, right? As being able to say, I earned it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, so let's turn to, to, to your interviews. Um, yeah. And there's, there's sort of so much rich material there. Maybe you're a better judge of where to start than I am, but is, is there, what do you want to say about the, the, what are the things that you still sort of, of keeping your head about the most striking kinds of patterns about the ways in which people responded to your questions about, you know, where they are, how do they describe where they are, how do they explain why they got there, whether they feel like successes or failures. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about how people think about those kinds of questions? 
So I think an, an interesting place to start is with the idea of advantage or, you know, what, 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 what sort of we conversationally now call privilege. Um, you know, this is a, an important point in a lot of, you know, really American discourse and, and, and you know, left discourse particularly is, is you know, like, are, are you uh, aware of your advantage? Do you acknowledge your advantage? Uh, these kinds of things. And something I expected going in based on sort of like things I'd read was that people who enjoyed a substantial advantage uh, or even a sort of noteworthy advantage um, were, were going to deny it. That's, that's what I sort of anticipated. Um, and that's not what I saw. Yeah. Uh, what, what I saw instead is that, you know, when people sort of described, and, and, and I guess I should offer as a caveat, I don't know what people didn't tell me because I wasn't doing like research on their lives beyond their interviews, but people, but people would sort of very, very openly say, yeah, I, I, I came, you know, I, I, I come from like this really good family uh, and they've supported me and they paid for my college and that was like really helpful uh, and I had so much more than so many other people, um, people, people readily acknowledged these kinds of things. And then what becomes interesting is what they do with that in relationship to the question of whether they've earned what they have. So, you know, most of the people who felt like they'd had something of a head start in life had ended up in a successful position, which is not terribly surprising based on the statistics you're talking about earlier about, you know, zip codes and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and so, okay, so you feel this, you had this substantial advantage and now you're in a good place. So do you feel like you earned that good place? And for the most part, the answer is, is, is yes. And there are, and there are reasons that people offer for that that are, that are interesting. And I think sort of make, make some sense, which is what a lot of people would say is, yeah, you know, because I feel like, I did the right things with my advantage, right? So yeah, I got to go to these really good schools and my parents paid for college, but I worked hard within that context. And so, you know, I feel like I earned it. Um, and what, what, what that is sort of telling me is that when people evaluate whether they as individuals earned what they have, they just want to say, well, what did I do? Right? They want to evaluate themselves because this is an individual question that's going to speak to their individual dignity. They don't want to hold themselves accountable for, for factors outside of their control, like that they grew up in a middle or upper middle class family. And, and you know, that, that makes some sense. Um, I, I should, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I want to think about my own life that way. But it's not meritocratic, right? Because if, if I have a huge advantage over you and then uh, uh, I end up in a better position. If you and I, uh, uh, Stephen, like apply for the same job and my uh, uh, uncle is the boss and I end up getting the job, it doesn't matter that I try really hard. And, I mean, it, it, I'm sorry. It, it's great that then I try really hard and do a really good job in the job. Yeah. But I, it, I didn't earn the job in a meritocratic sense vis-a-vis -vis your opportunities, you know? Uh, I maybe earned it in a sort of like more individual sort of like a, a sense that only speaks to my my own human dignity. So what I what I'm what I'm seeing there is that 
the standards people are using to evaluate whether they deserve things and earn things in their own lives are not, in fact, meritocratic standards. They're, they're, they're something else. The other thing I noticed about people talking about advantages is that people have this tendency to ask, like, well, was my advantage unreasonable, right? And there's this sort of, people didn't say this explicitly, but I sort of like uh, tried to suss this out based on the, the kind of uh, things people told me. Um, there's this question people ask implicitly about like, uh, uh, is my advantage something that a lot of people have or that people should have? One guy I talked to said, uh, I was born on second base. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but this is like an old quip from, I forget who about one of the Bushes. um, um, And, um, uh, Richards. uh, And Richards. Thank you. Former governor of Texas talking about George W. Bush said, uh, he was born on third base and thought he hit a home run. Right, exactly. And the implication there is that you didn't have to do anything. Somebody has sack fly and you scored and you think you did something awesome, right? So born on second base implies to me like, yeah, it's a bit of a head start, but like I still have to sort of like, you know, run hard and pay attention. And and I, I felt like I got that feeling from a lot of people. They felt they were born on second base and that like they could still sort of grant themselves the dignity of deservedness given that uh, condition. Um, One story I tell that I think is useful for sort of understanding this dynamic is this, uh, this lawyer I interviewed um, who uh, he was like a, a, you know, some corporate attorney and uh, you know, wearing a fancy suit when he met me, you know, uh, uh, he was a good position in life. Uh, He, you know, he, he liked his job. And uh, I said, uh, do you feel like you've earned where you are? And, and he said, yeah, I do. You know, I'm smart and I worked hard. And then I, I said, well, do you feel like we live in a meritocracy? And he said, no, uh, which is not in and of itself surprising. And I said, why? And he said, well, these women that I work with, they are uh, smarter than me and they work harder than me. But our bosses are sexists. And so I get opportunities, I get promotions that they don't get. And this sort of stopped me and made me think like, well, if you and these women are competing for the same promotions and you're getting them because of sexist bosses, how can you deserve to be where you are? And the answer is because he's not asking, do I deserve it based on a pure meritocracy? He's asking, did I do the right thing given the sort of playing field that was laid out in front of me? And I don't think that's a crazy thing for him to think individually, but it does sort of raise some questions about then how we, you know, organize society and what we aspire to in terms of like building toward a meritocracy at the societal level. You know, I also wonder, this is a little bit outside the four corners of of your book, but I wonder, you know, how much of this is in some ways sort of a reaction to cognitive dissonance and, and justification for not doing super hard things, right? Because at some level, if you recognize I have had these advantages and they have made it possible for me to live a very different kind of life than other people lead and the world is filled with people who have worked just as hard or harder as I have, but haven't seen the benefits from that. And that's wrong. The next, the implication of that is, and therefore I now need to work to alter those systems to create greater fairness. 
And that's just not stuff that most people are interested in or up for. I, I, th- I think there's truth to that. I also think it's stuff that's like, you know, a really, a really difficult proposition for somebody who's in a work a day job, <laughs> you know, yeah. to be like, I'm going to go alter the systems that determined, you know, most people yeah. are just going to work and doing the best that they can. And, uh, and again, given that we live in a society that says that like, you know, a lot of, a lot, not all, but a lot of your dignity is based on, you know, being able to sort of, to, to, to say, I earned my professional uh, uh, position. Yeah. You don't want to deny yourself that dignity based on things you couldn't control. That is a form of cognitive dissonance. And, uh, and, and, and I understand why people duck it. Yeah. I mean, you point out in a couple of instances, maybe sort of the most extreme and arguably absurd case of this is somebody like uh, Ivanka Trump, right? Sort of straining to make the case that, that she has merited the, the government positions that she held, which, you know, maybe this is my own bias showing, but I don't think stands up to too much scrutiny. No, um, well, no, it, 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 cle- it, it clearly doesn't. And I think that in, 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 in cases like that, I think, you know, most reasonable people can look at it and say that's ridiculous. But I also think that it's sort of reflective of the flexibility and the fluidity of these definitions. If even Ivanka Trump can make a case, right. you know, uh, that she's earned it, then uh, uh, then then we don't have very clear sort of cultural standards for this. Yeah. Um, so did did no one really suggest you you phrase this differently, and I don't have it directly in front of me, but you, but you suggested that 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 no one suggested that they actually hadn't lived up to their potential. Am I getting that right? No one says they hadn't lived up to their potential. That they that they had. Give me two seconds. Let me no, see if I can. No, no, no. I, I, I think I know what you're thinking of. Here we go. I... Uh, no interview has said anything to the effect of, "quote I should have done better, considering how smart I am." So that's slightly different than the way I. Yeah. So, so, so what that is about, and, and this this is an interesting thing to talk about because I think it's another sort of really complicated wrinkle in all this is talent. Right and our relationship to the idea of talent, uh, because this this is like a really big sort of leg on on the stool of of my argument that like that what we talk about when we talk about deserving things is different from the meritocratic version of deserving things. Right. So so in a meritocracy, if I'm just super talented and don't try very hard, that doesn't matter. I should still get the job. I should still get the reward. I'm just the best. At, I'm just the best for the job. Right. But when you ask people what does it mean to deserve something and who earns things, talent doesn't factor in uh, very prominently. Uh, we want to think about, again, things within people's control. What are the choices that they made? Uh, how much effort did they put out? Now, I mean, we could get really philosophical if you want and ask whether those things matter too. But the sort of like colloquial understanding of these concepts in American life is that like, Talent is something you're born with, and then you make choices about making effort and making decisions, and that that speaks more to your agency, right? And we're really uncomfortable with the idea that talent determines a lot, because if talent determines a lot, then that's not meritocracy, right? That's not really that's not really merited. That's not earned. Um, when I asked people about the so, – so one thing that's interesting is, is, is when I asked people, well, how would you get where you are? What are the important factors? 
people would, you know, they'd tell me a story and they'd talk about people who helped them and they talk about sort of structural factors in their lives, the class they grew up in, they talk about different breaks that they had, and they would talk about efforts and decisions. And they tended not to talk about talent. And I had to ask a lot of people, well, what about talent, right? What about your sort of natural abilities? And then I would get things, I, I would get answers like, well, I'm mechanically inclined or I'm good with numbers or I'm a people person and that kind of thing. Uh, and what I'm saying, nobody said anything like I'm, I'm really smart, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm extreme. You, you, nobody described themselves as having sort of exceptional abilities. Um, and uh, uh, the passage you're talking about here, um, you know, people would sort of, uh, people can treat talent as a sort of like, starting point based on which they can measure their, you know, achievement and what they accomplish. But, but nobody said anything quite like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm really smart and I've let myself down in that regard. We just, we, we, we seem to try to minimize, uh, and I, and I should say, I don't, I don't have any like, uh, uh, specific insight into how important talent actually is, <laughs> you know, in people's lives. But what I can say is that when we tell stories, people seem to want to avoid the question. So as, as, as we work our way toward, toward concluding here, you finish up thy book by talking about four narratives that you think might be useful for us to, to hear more. Could you walk us through uh, some or all of those that you think would, would help us what sort of, 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 bridge the divide that you have been pointing to in in our thinking about this question how what are the what are the the, the ways we should be shifting the way that we tell stories about uh merit or deservingness or meritocracy sure so let, let me let me say as a sort of preface to that that you know it's a hard question when you start to say like well the problem is not that we believe we live in a meritocracy it's that we we have this meritocratic ideal well, then you got to figure out, well, what do you want instead of that? Because, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I got, I got, I have kids. Uh, my, uh, 10 year old right now is in the process has just gone through like this process in the baseball league and there's like all-star tryouts. I'm like, there's not a better way to decide who's on that team than the coaches try to pick the best players. You know, uh, uh, there is a lot that is sort of intuitive and, uh, uh, healthy about having some meritocratic standards. Like you want a qualified person to be your electrician or surgeon, you know, you want the kid with the strong arm to play quarterback, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, so there's a lot to, to sort of recommend that. And I don't, and, and so I'm not sort of like all in on like fully deconstructing everything about, the meritocratic ideal. So, so what I'm trying to do is, is figure out, well, how can we tell stories about how people get to where they are that doesn't like object to those things entirely, that doesn't discourage effort in life, but still pushes for like a softer meritocracy that acknowledges the incoherence and inevitable shortcomings of like meritocratic systems, right? that there's always going to be an act of God. There's always going to be lucky breaks. Uh, and how can we just sort of make people's, how can we tell stories that encourage us to make people's lives better, not just by leveling the playing field and trying to get closer to a perfect meritocracy, but by admitting that 
we're not going to have a perfect meritocracy. So how do we have a good life anyway? Right. Uh, and some of the storylines that I uh, suggest to do that are one, acknowledging that people can succeed and fail, not just as individuals, but as parts of groups. So one thing that people do uh, a lot in telling their stories, is, and, and we as Americans do, is we sort of try to uh, uh, isolate the individual in their trajectory. We try to say like, well, who was the star of that team? Who really carried that team forward? And, and, and what did Serena Williams do on her own without her father's, you know, uh, uh, you know what, what's really Serena in there? You know, like that, 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 that kind of thing. And I think that we could do that less. We could just sort of acknowledge that, that, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that people succeed as parts of groups and communities and they fail that way too. And that's okay. And we don't always have to figure out like who the individual's role in that is. Um, another one is I think that we should be more open to the idea that talent is really important. We should feel less, uh, awkward about that. There's this, there's this really, I think, interesting, and I haven't decided if I think it's fully sort of hypocritical or, or, or whatever, but there's a tendency that we, we think that, that saying that you have talent is really, you know, egotistical and obnoxious. It's immodest. One doesn't do that, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but people talk about how hard they work all the time. Right. <laughs> and what's interesting is that Actually, we really value hard work in American society, and we're really uncomfortable with the idea of talent. It should be hard work. Should bragging about how hard you work should be the should be the immodest thing, right? <laughs> right? Um, and so, I think that just sort of being more open about the possibility that talent determines certain things uh, would be useful. Now, there's there you know there there are dangers there uh, for sure. Um, but it's it's another thing we should sort of sort of sort of yeah. be more open to. Um, another thing is that like I think, and I I, I, I come back to Carly Fiorina for this. Um, so a lot of uh, the the attacks on Carly Fiorina after she you know came out with this secretary for CEO line were were sort of these. Uh, um, no, you didn't really earn it because of such and such advantages. And this is a pretty common sort of line of attack and line of argument when, when, when you want to sort of tear somebody down in American society, talk about how they didn't earn their position. But part of what that kind of line of attack does is it reinforces the premise yep. that it's possible for someone to earn it. It's possible for someone to sort of like be a true realization of meritocracy. And so what, what I suggest is that more of these sorts of critiques should be less about like you specifically didn't earn it. We're not sometimes in a meritocracy or almost in a meritocracy. We're not in a meritocracy except for such and such violations. We're not in a meritocracy, you know, and, 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 and we're probably not going to be. And we don't need to uh, 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 sort of see, keep on reinforcing the premise that some people can, you know, can represent that sort of true bootstraps story. Uh, and the last one is luck. Uh, it is just like, uh, it, it, it is acknowledging and being more comfortable with the role of, of lucky breaks in determining things that luck doesn't need to be necessarily explained away or apologized for. It is an inevitable part of life. Uh, and, uh, and, and we should just like, work on integrating that as, uh, as, uh, a, non 
I don't know, it, it, it is so frequently now treated in stories as this sort of exception to the rule of how things work. No, 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 no. It's that luck is how things work. Um, and, and you um, uh, talked earlier and, and, and writing the book about the, the racial Alger stories, but, and I had occasion a number of years ago to go back and actually read a bunch of those. Um, every one of those stories that I remember, the turning point is actually happenstance. It's a bit of luck. It's a bit of fortune. It's a deus ex machina, right? So it's, we've, we've even internalized those stories as, and, you know, part of that narrative is, you know, street urchin does the following things and rises to commanding heights, but there is always this turning point that is precisely that it's chance it's luck it's the intervention of fate and we've erased that from from this story that we think reflects the way that we understand mobility in the united states but even that doesn't we've so uh contorted uh our so, thinking around this well so i i i think what what what, what actually happens there we didn't we didn't get a chance to get into this but the thing about the the thing about the way people use luck in their stories is it's not entirely unlike the way they use privilege in their stories is we say like okay we're going to acknowledge it but then we're going to figure out we're going to figure out a way to put it back on the individual right right so i took advantage so, of it sure i got right, lucky but uh, then here's what right. i did with that luck so there's the cliche of I made my own luck, and then there's the then there's the, the exactly what you're saying, like, but I, I reacted to it the right way. There's almost like a sort of a quasi-statistical philosophy about luck, because like if you get bad luck, you know, you just gotta keep trying and eventually your luck turns, or if you get good luck, you have to capitalize on that at that, that moment. And what we don't do is make luck the star of the story. Right? We try to find some way to have luck be this external factor. That somebody then, exactly like you're saying in the Horatio Alger story, has to capitalize and sort of do the right thing with. But like luck can be determinant, right? That is what we tend not to sort of. Uh, but of course, admit. if we acknowledge that, and maybe this is where we should end, is is that that requires that we rethink the economy, the political system, and the welfare state, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, if, if this really is just happenstance, whether some people eat and other people don't, maybe we then need to erect systems that control for that. And that's a much more complicated enterprise, obviously. Yeah, but but that's the idea. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're a policy guy, Stephen. Most of my, you know, my book has like a page of policy in it. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What, what, what I view it as, as doing, I hope, is like offering a different frame for making some of these same policy interventions that people like you have been fighting for for a long time, which is, you know, the, the, the big picture sort of liberalism uh, and, and to some extent the left the United States has been uh, uh, for a long time now saying, well, we don't live in a meritocracy and that is why we need to fix things and make things a level playing field. But that keeps on sort of reiterating this premise that we could live in a meritocracy. Right. And I think that the frame we need to start advancing is, is, is not just like we need to level the playing field, but just like we just need to make life better regardless. Because yeah. exactly like you're saying, yeah, luck is determinant in a lot of cases, and it's always going to be, right? That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to level the playing field. That would be better, Right. Uh, but, uh, but yes, we have to sort of rethink these systems of distribution, uh, if we want to have a society that approaches anything, uh, close to justice, um, be, be, because of this sort of profound role of luck. 
You have been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Doran Tausig, who's the author of What We Mean by the American Dream, Stories We Tell About Meritocracy from ILR and Cornell University Press. Doran, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Steve.